Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Andrew Slotnick. And I'm Devna Shukla. Today, we are thrilled to be speaking with Stern Professor of Finance, Aswat Damodaran. Professor Damodaran came to Stern in 1986. He's a legendary teacher and also the author of some really popular texts on valuation, corporate finance, and investment management. If you study your work in finance, there's a good chance you've heard of him or read his work. I can't wait to learn more about it, but before we do, a quick shout out to Connie Liu who helped us produce today's show. Connie, thank you so much for your hard work. The pleasure really is all mine. I mean, like many of us, I heard the word demodorant floating around all the time, but I really didn't know much about him and who he was. So I did some research and the more and more I read, the more I understood how he earned his reputation as a teacher and an authority figure in finance you come to discover someone who's just so smart and so passionate about what he does. It's kind of like finally seeing a movie you've heard people reference for months, and I really think this is gonna be a great conversation. Awesome, thank you so much for your hard work, Connie. So Andrew, what do you think? Should we get started? Flip the switch and let's go. Cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Devna Shukla. And I'm Andrew Slotnick. Some of you know today's guest as the Dean of Valuation, but to us here at Stern, he's our ever-energetic professor of finance, Aswat Demodaran. Thank you for joining us today, Professor. Thank you for having me. So one thing that we do with all of our guests um, when they first come on the show is, what is your 30-second elevator pitch so we can learn a little bit more about you? I'm a teacher, teacher first and foremost. I'm not an academic. I'm not a professor. I love teaching. Awesome. Was that really what drove you? Was teaching initially when you decided to pivot into being a professor after after going through school? I never wanted to be a professor. I wanted to be a teacher. So basically, I, I, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of the origins of For sure. how I ended up here. I call these God shots, moments when you get a recognition that you're meant to do something. I was an MBA at UCLA in 1981, and it was the last semester of school, and I needed to make some money because I just needed to pay bills. So I took a job as a TA in accounting. And that gives you some insight into how much I must have loved teaching because I hate accounting. (laughs) (laughs) I I walked into that first class expecting it to be another job to get done. And 15 minutes in, I knew this was what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I was lucky that I was open to that possibility. So I knew then that I wanted to teach. And to teach at a university, you need a PhD. So to me, Getting a PhD was always a means to an end to be a teacher. And I've told people if I didn't teach at Stern, I'd be teaching in a community college. If I wasn't teaching in a community college, I'd be teaching at a high school. My wife's a second grade teacher. She's actually the better teacher in my household. Oh, I'm sure. No, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> and, Coming from and, you. <laughs> and I learned things about teaching from her as well. But uh, that's the way I think of myself. I'm a teacher and everything else I do is second to that. You said that you want to be a teacher, not a professor. Can you sort of dive into the differentiation between the two? Professor sounds so pedantic, Mm. pompous. It sounds like you're uh, up on a pedestal telling people truths that they did not know. Nothing I say is something that people couldn't have figured out on their own. So the way I see it is you already know the stuff I'm going to teach you. I'm just going to open you up to the possibility that you know it inside. And I'll give you a structure to think about what you already know and put it out as knowledge. 
to me, professors always sounded like you're doing things that you never meant to do. I'd rather be called a teacher. So one thing off of that is the frequent question in your class of is valuation an art or a science? And as a teacher, I guess you're teaching it in the particular way you want to teach it. Mm -hmm. Maybe can you talk a little bit about your high-level approach to that and how you really thought of that mantra? Well, I feel close to my valuation class because until I started teaching valuation here in 1986, there was no valuation class at any business school because people felt that there wasn't enough stuff in valuation to actually fill a class. So in many ways, I tell people that Everything I know about valuation, I've learned in the course of teaching that class. And that description, I think, is apt because valuation is neither art nor science. To be a science, you need absolutes. If you get the inputs right, you have to get the output right. Today, I plan to value lift. And I'll tell you up front, I will go into the valuation knowing I'm going to be hopelessly wrong. All right. I'm going to be hopelessly wrong, not because I can't bring the process of valuation in, but because I'm not God. I don't know what the future is going to deliver. So it cannot be a science simply because even if I get every input right based on what I know, the output is still going to be horribly wrong. It's not an art because the essence of an art is you really cannot teach it. Thank God, valuation is not an art. Otherwise, I've wasted 32 years of my life trying to teach something that cannot be taught. It's a craft. Right. The essence of a craft is you never quite master it. I mean, I give people the analogy of cooking. And the reason I give it is you, you don't learn cooking by watching TV shows. You don't learn cooking by reading books. You learn cooking by cooking. And the first time you cook, no matter how much you're prepared, you're going to screw up. Right. right. Because you learn only in the process of screwing up. And I tell people that to learn valuation, the only way to do it is to keep valuing things, even though it might be hard work up front and you screw up immensely when you first start. Because each time you value a company, you will learn something new. So to me, that is the key, is to recognize it's a craft and to keep working at it. I read somewhere that you said that you love to untangle the puzzles of corporate finance and valuation. But I'm so curious, like, where did this all really begin? Is there a Godshot moment when you were growing up where you now think back to in middle school or in high school? It wasn't finance. That, I mean, at middle school, if, if you're thinking about finance in middle school, there's something serious wrong with you, right? I mean, you Sorry, mean, Andrew. That, that was not me. Come on. <laughs> you shouldn't be thinking about financial markets and stocks. In fact, I get uh, these letters from middle schoolers and high schoolers saying, I want to work at an investment bank. And my reaction is, <laughs> there's something seriously off kilter here because middle school, I was thinking about cricket, and I was, I mean, but I always liked puzzles. I like puzzles that, and we all as human beings, I think, like to solve puzzles. To me, the reason I like corporate finance and valuation is there are relatively few principles. I tell people, you get the five basic principles in finance, you can untangle any puzzle you're faced up to. And that's what makes it attractive to me. I don't have to learn a hundred different rules or a hundred different models. If I can go back to my basics, remember those principles, I can untangle any puzzle. So to me, that goes back to crossword puzzles when I was a kid and liking to do them. This is just an extension of the same process. Do you still do crossword puzzles today? I have no patience to finish them. <laughs> I, I, I can start them, but my wife's very much better at finishing these puzzles than I am. So once I get to the, through the easy side, I give up now. I feel like I can do like the easy Sudoku on the back of like the airplane magazine. I'm always super <laughs> upset when it's already filled in. But going back off with puzzles, a lot of research is done in finance and valuation over time. As things change, how do you reevaluate these pieces? Constantly. I call this keeping the feedback loop open. One of the problems in any discipline is once you finish something, an analysis, 
you so want it to be right. If facts come in that are not in conjunction with your model, you reject the facts. You have an immense amount of confirmation bias, and, and that's human nature. Right. We all want to be right so much that we don't want to be open to the possibility that we've messed up somewhere. So I have to constantly remind myself that I have to keep the feedback loop open. I have to talk to people who don't think like I do. I've discovered, and this is, I think, a problem across business, is we tend to specialize, we tend to hang out with people who think like we do, went to the same schools we did, we read the same books, and we all pat each other on the back because we all think alike. So when we do an analysis, everybody around the table says, that's exactly the way I would have done it. And I tell people, seek out people who don't think like you do, present your analysis, and then be willing to duck because they're going to throw things at you, <laughs> physically, metaphorically, because they make you defend the first things you do because there's so much in a discipline we take for granted. Why should I use a treasury bond rate as a risk-free rate? It, it's Everybody it, does it. Everybody does it, right? So in a sense, by hanging out with people who don't think like I do, I get to listen to people who say, hey, you're wrong. And if I can keep the feedback loop open, I can incorporate what they tell me and make my valuation better. Was that always your approach, or did you have a particular moment in your career where you were like, okay, I need to reevaluate, maybe be a bit more open-minded? I'm probably less dogmatic than I used to be because I've been wrong enough that okay, I've had it. to learn. And I think some of that is just, it's part of growing up is, I think, some people never do. Part of growing up is recognizing that you don't have the answer. You have an answer to a question. I've learned over time to respect other people's answers, even if I don't think that they're coming from the same place I am. Is there a time when you were wrong that you still think about today? No, I have no regrets because I've discovered that one of the most dangerous things you can do is hang on to mistakes you've made in the past, trying to avoid them in the future. I mean, history is full of uh, generals who fought the last war, right? If I think about mistakes I've made in the past and try to over-adjust, I actually make worse mistakes. Mm. So the way I see it is I'm going to make mistakes. I will learn from these mistakes. I'll give you an example. I valued uh, Vale, the Brazilian mining company, in 2013 or 14, And I called it my 3C valuation. It was a currency prom, a commodity prom, and a country prom all piled up on top of each other. And I screwed up immensely because I assumed that the iron ore price drop that had already happened was in their numbers already. So I actually lost about 50% of what I invested. Because the other thing I do is I actually act on my valuations. That's why I find it funny when people call me an academic. I value things because I'm interested in acting on it. And I lost half my money because I hadn't factored in the reality that commodity companies hedge, they have futures, they have forwards. So it takes about two years for a drop in oil prices to show up in oil company numbers. It's too late to get that money back on Vale, but I learned from that. So when I value commodity companies now, I work much harder to clean up the financials. In many ways, if I hadn't lost the money, I wouldn't be valuing commodity companies better today than I did then. At the moment of the loss, you couldn't have told me that. It was too raw. But I think that I don't look back and say, I wish I'd bought that stock. I wish I'd sold that stock. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to look at it. Just kind of move on after you've made a mistake, learn from it, and, and keep going. One question that I have about how you treat the way you teach in front of your valuation and corporate finance class, is that a testing ground where you're really bouncing ideas off of students in some cases? Or is it, okay, I'm putting something in front of the board that I've already tried and tested. This is an example. That I, I'll use Lyft as my example. Today, I'm going to 
do three things. I'm going to do my finish my valuation of Lyft. I'm going to send it out as a valuation of the week. For those of you familiar with my valuation class, I put up a valuation every week, and I put my story, my valuation, my Excel spreadsheet, and I encourage people to take that valuation and make it their own. And what I tell them is, look, this is my valuation of Lyft. You do your valuation because, and then we, I ask them to put the numbers into a Google shared spreadsheet to make it like a crowd valuation. So let's see what we do as a crowd. But later today, and I'm not sure I can finish it by later today, I'm going to write a blog post where I essentially going to, I'm going to list out my story for Lyft, my valuation. So as they see the valuation, it's actually going to go on my blog post, on my blog, people are going to read it. So the valuation that they will be working on as a valuation of the week is the valuation that, in a sense, the public sees on my blog. Because once it goes out there in the blog, it's in the public domain because it gets picked up right now in about 20 or 25 different places, like seeking out. So my valuation is going to be out there. By tomorrow morning, I can't walk it back. Right. So if I've screwed up, I have to get out there tomorrow morning on my blog and say, look, guys, I screwed up. And I've done it before. I've said, look, I missed a zero on one of the numbers. You know, It happens. So when I do my valuation of Lyft today, I cannot treat it as kind of an intermediate draft valuation because it's not fair. It's not fair to my students to view them as, hey, let me throw a draft thing out and you tell me whether I've screwed up because I'm then using them almost as error checkers. Right. Now go check through the prospect to see if I missed something. Doesn't mean I wouldn't have missed something, but I need to be okay with that valuation being out there and somebody saying you missed something in the prospectus. How long does it take you to actually value a company from start to finish? Depends on the company. Lyft takes longer because when you value a company like Kraft Heinz, as an example, I valued last week, the company's been around 120 years, 57 types of ketchup that nobody really likes. And, uh, <laughs> this is something that people who are new to or even our established valuation sometimes forget. They think of valuations as Excel spreadsheets. Valuations are stories. They're stories you're telling about a company. When you look at a company like Kraft Heinz, the story's pretty much told. It's not like I can come up with 15 different stories. This is a company that's maturing, perhaps old, and I can't recreate it. It's like being in chapter 33 of a 34-chapter book, right? It's it's the characters laid out. So with the craft times, it doesn't take much time. There's not much room for the story. We can debate whether the growth rate is going to be 3% or 1%. It's not, is it going to be 300% or 10%, right? In contrast, when you look at a company like Lyft, the prospectus is only the start of the process. There's nothing there. In fact, I'm amazed the prospectus runs 225 pages. It's 220 pages of crap. <laughs> I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you. Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but was there anything in that prospectus that surprised you, given it's the first prospectus Absolutely of a rideshare company? I mean, it's, you could have written it. The risk. <laughs> you list. There's an entire section on risk, which I think is one of the most useless sections that you will ever see, because it lists things like we might never make money. It's clear the lawyers got together and said, "What are all the things we can do as disclaimers mm -hmm. in there that, that we can never get sued?" To make this document look yeah. fat. <laughs> it's not even that the lawyers don't even care about the stock. It's just. We don't want to get sued if the stock collapses. There are about six or seven pages of the 225 that are useful, but even they give, it's like a third grader's report card, right? What are you going to learn about what this kid is going to do when he grows up? So when I value Lyft, I've got to spend a lot more time looking at the ride-sharing business and how it's changing. I have to spend more time thinking than reading.
And this, I think, is the curse of Google search, right? Because you think there's an answer to every question out there. So when there's a question, what do you do? You go on Google search and you search and you search and you search and you search, when in fact you could have spent 15 minutes looking at the question and reasoning to an answer. So sometimes people think all the answers out there. So let me go see how well ride sharing is going to do in the future. Let me look for stuff online that will answer the question. The answer is stuff online is somebody else's story and opinion. So I've got to spend more time on evaluation like Lyft, thinking about the ride-sharing business and coming up with how I think the business is going to evolve. So Lyft valuation will probably take me more time, but I never spend more than a full day on valuing any company. If I'm not done with evaluation in 24 hours, then I'm looking for false comfort. And what I mean by that is people are uncomfortable when they do valuation, and they should be because you've just played God. And they think they can make that discomfort go away by collecting more data, doing more research. And it's not going to go away. So I've got to accept the fact that when I'm done, I'm done. I'm going to be uncertain about my inputs, and it's okay. I'm going to put out a valuation that's going to be wrong, and that's fine too. The world isn't going to end. Nobody's going to die. So if I screw up an evaluation, big deal. And that's why I tell people, look, I'm not going to tell you what to do. This is what I'm doing myself. And I want you to take my valuation and make it your own because you need to act on your story and your valuation, not mine. Understanding that everybody screws up when you're doing valuations all the time, but a lot of people look to you for advice. Do you feel like an added weight on your shoulders when, yeah. you're, when you're going through no, it that it's way? Not, it's not my fault. <laughs> when I get on CNBC, I'm very open about the fact, look, I'm not telling you what to do. And that's the advantage I have of not working as an equity research analyst or investment banker or portfolio manager, because then you have this added weight on your shoulders of you're trying to convince other people. I don't have to convince anybody that my story is the right story. I don't want to. In fact, when people ask me, why do you not go out there and create a service? I don't, I'm not interested in that, because in a sense, it creates not just pressure, but biases that I think are going to make my story a less full story. Because now I can take risks with my story I could never take if I had to worry about, you know, what will the company... And that's the other reason. I've never, ever used a company as my source for information in valuing the company. I never do. And that not only protects me from legal repercussions, but it also means that I can come up with any number I want. I can tell a company, look, you're worth a third of what I think you're trading at. And I don't have to worry about the CFO calling me and saying, how dare you do that? No, we used you as a source. We gave you this information. So I don't want to feel beholden to anybody because they provided information. I don't want to be a journalist who covers a politician, who uses a politician as his primary source. Because then if you burn the politician, that's the end of your source. I can burn as many companies as I want and not worry about information being cut off because I always use public information. That's really interesting. You know, another thing, uh, speaking of information, is that Andrew and I are lucky enough to be in your class, and you do share a lot of real-time information through emails, iTunes U, YouTube. You're constantly out there on CNBC, on your blog, sharing information. Have you always done this since you started, or how did your philosophy change with sharing information and sharing your, your perspective on valuation? Remember how I described myself at the start? Of the set? I said I'm a teacher. And if you're a teacher, you want to teach. You want to change people. You want to affect as big an audience as possible. And it's always struck me as strange when people hold on to information because why would you want to change only 100 people when you can change 100,000 people? 
when people go on and they get data off my site, they always, you know, they're a little puzzled because there's always a catch. And I don't blame them because in the real world, there's even when you buy a free game, there's always in-app purchases, right? right. They want to, where's the, the hook? And I tell them, look, you know, when you run into Jehovah's Witness and they hand you a Bible and they don't charge you for the Bible, you say, why are they doing it? Because they have a mission that's very different. Your end game and their end game don't match up. They want salvation for you, for better or worse. And while I cannot sell salvation, I want to teach. I want to change the way people think. And to me, there's no better way to do that than to get the stuff I have out there. And the other thing is there's nothing that I produce, either in teaching or in data, that is really unique. All I do is take existing raw data and massage it a little and I put it out there to claim that this is somehow some unique spin for which I should be paid strikes me as strange. I mean, I don't see the reason for even charging people. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Do you tailor how you present information, data to finance people versus non-finance people? Here at Stern, you teach a class that's 400 students with various types of backgrounds yeah. these students have. Well, teaching is about adapting to your audience. That's why you can teach the same material to 50 different groups and end up with 50 very different experiences. I mean, it's a two-way street. Even if people are never asking questions, you can gauge how it's going by looking at them. That's why I hate teaching in dark rooms, because when you don't get it, your eyes will give you away. So to me, the way I teach will shift. But not by that much. I don't believe in dumbing down my class just because you give me 100 history majors. I'm going to make them reach, and I'm, because there's nothing, again, that I do that is particularly sophisticated or math-oriented. I don't need you to understand stochastic calculus. I just need you to know how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide. And no person should ever say, I cannot do that. I was a history major. A few years ago, I was a keynote speaker. I don't know, at a conference, they asked me, you know, what do you want on your badge? Do you want a professor? Do you want... And I said, why do you put shit disturber? <laughs> and because um, the, my job is to go in and disrupt people's thinking. So if you put me in front of a group of sell-side equity research analysts, I'm going to shake them up. You put me in front of a group of CFOs. I, so my job is to look at what people do and ask them, does that make sense? Is there a better way of doing things? So I will adapt what I do to my audience, and depending on the type of audience, you might get the same material delivered in five different ways. So you call yourself the Kim Kardashian evaluation, which I would love to unpack that analogy. But also, is there a time where you first realized that people were listening to your disruption and your thoughts overall? The first time I put my class online was in the 1990s, which was well before online was even a thought. I used to have a camcorder at the back of the classroom. I remember it. I used to teach in 260, and there was a camcorder that would be set up because there were no cameras in the classroom. They would record the class on a videotape. I would make them put three copies of the videotape at Bob's library, at the NYU library, and people who missed the class could watch the, the videos. And in the, I think in 94 or something, I found a way of converting a videotape into a lecture that you could put online. I always wanted to teach the biggest possible audience. Again, it's this thing about if you're going to be an actor, would you rather act in front of 50 people or 500 people? It's always struck me as I'd like the biggest possible audience. And that's why part of the reason I call myself the Kim Kardashian is maybe that's the exhibitionist streak in me is I want to get to the biggest audience out there. But I, I've always wanted a, 
a bigger classroom. And what technology has given me is the capacity to take the physical classroom and not stop there and keep going. It, it took a fight because, you know, this is not something that NYU naturally wants. So they want to keep things behind passwords because they say, look, you know, people have paid the tuition. They need. To. And my pushback is sharing this is not going to take away from the people in the classroom. They're still my first priority. But it means that more people can then get that same material at the same time. So it's always been something I wanted to do. But technology has just made it easier. I feel like I got my $275 worth yesterday for my class. Our, <laughs> our valuation class was canceled due to a, I don't even know what that was. It, it wasn't a snowstorm. It was a flurry. And uh, Professor DeMotoran immediately uploaded the missed class up online so we can just stride right along, yeah. which was good. Going back, you graduated from UCLA with your MBA and your PhD. I'm a very proud Bruin, so I'm glad to hear that mm -hmm. you are too. But then you came to NYU in 1986. What has kept you at NYU and the same institution for so long? Part of it is inertia, right? Part of it also is I probably would not be a good fit in many business schools, many universities, because there, if you're in a small school, a Chicago, a Berkeley, uh, an MIT, there's a certain type of research that's viewed as good research, certain type of research that's viewed as bad research. Research dominates. You know, NYU was a laissez-faire place. It's so big that there was no one prevailing philosophy about this is the way you should do research. So I was able to be myself. It's the old Popeye. I'm what I am. And NYU said, okay, you are what you are. Keep going. So... Uh, to me, it's allowed me to be whatever I want to be. I could go into a classroom dressed in jeans and nobody said you should be dressed in a suit or a tie. You know, I don't think I could have pulled that off at Harvard Business School. And uh, I could do research, if you can call it that. I've, always, I've never done research for the purpose of just being published in a journal. I wrote books because I felt I could reach a much bigger audience. And NYU was okay with that. So for that reason, I've always been happy being at NYU rather than thinking about where else can I go. And since so much of what I do is outside the classroom, it's not been that critical to me to get to a school that I think I, I need a bigger name or I need some. It's, it, that's never been on my list of things that I want to do. And I, and I love New York, and that's a reality. I mean, New, NYU and New York are so much. I mean, this is not a campus, right? You step out of the building, you're in the city. And that's always been another thing that I wanted because uh, when I came to NYU, my other choices were Dartmouth and London Business School. London Business School in 86, the problem was if you were in finance and you left the U.S., you were out of the mainstream. It's, today it's different, but there. I considered Dartmouth. I loved the school, but then I had to ask myself, could I live in Hanover for the rest of my life? And the problem in Hanover is you would have always been in your classroom. There would have been no place in Hanover I could have gone to where I wouldn't have run into people in my classes. I noticed that even when I was at, spent two years at Berkeley as um, you know teaching, that's where I learned how to teach. And I would run into students all over the place. And Berkeley is a much bigger place than Hanover. So the nice thing about New York is you leave NYU, People don't know who you are. I mean, you, you know, you're three blocks away. You're, you're part of the city. And to me, that's always been a nice part of the school is when I want to kind of separate myself from the school. It's five minutes away. I'm, I'm gone. Since you've been doing this from 1986, how has New York changed and how have your students changed? 
86, New York was a pretty crappy place. I mean, it was a, this stretch of the, the city was not safe. I mean, you walk past Broadway, forget about the avenues even. I mean, you were in the Wild West. So the city is a pleasanter, safer place in many ways. It's and people who come to New York for the first time. It's a, it was more unpleasant than this. I mean, <laughs> there were there were pockets of the city you could. The school itself, when I came here, was primarily. I mean, the evening program. It's never a part-time program, but it's an evening program dominated the school because so many of our students were evening students, and because Stern never had this line between evening classes, everybody got the same program. I've never taught evening classes. That was one of the conditions I put on the school is, look, I'll teach during the day, but I, when my first child was born in 1989. And to me, evening classes would have been, uh, evening and weekends were mine. So the school has become more of a traditional business school in the sense that the center of gravity has shifted towards a full-time program. You now have the Langone program, but that program is kind of separate from the full-time program in terms of how it's structured. You mentioned evenings and weekends. I'm curious what you like to do for fun or to relax outside of valuation. Because we know so much about you as the teacher and the valuation guru. But I don't actually go out very much. I read a lot. I watch TV sometimes. I, I love sports. I love baseball. So if I go out, it's probably for a Yankee game. I like to hang out with my family a lot. You know, I like to play board games. My daughter taught me the Settlers of Catan over there, you know, so played for the first. So I, I like to spend time with family. I like to read. I like to watch movies. I just bought the AMC Movie Pass, which lets you see up to three movies a week. I'll never get to three movies a week. Good value for you yeah, compared absolutely. to what it used to be. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what do you read? Are, are there particular publications that you open up every morning? I, I just read pulp. I just don't read serious stuff. I mean, I don't read business books. I don't like deep philosophical tomes. If there aren't at least three people being killed in the course of a book, I don't read it. <laughs> I like serial killer books. I like murder mysteries. In fact, my wife reads much deeper books than I do. I, I can't take them. It's so funny you said that because when I interned a very, very long time ago for a congressman, and my job every morning was to put out all the newspapers on his desk. You had the Washington Post. You had the New York Times. You had the Wall Street Journal, all this stuff. And only one paper would go missing at the end of the day, which was the paper he read, and it was the New York Post. Mm. So it's just kind of funny that you have these people that obviously want to stay up to date with the news. It's essential to their career, and they go right for the pulp. I, I think <laughs> reading deep stuff is vastly overrated in business. I think people think that, again, it goes back to that Google search phenomenon. The answer is there somewhere. Let me look for it. So I read but I read on my own terms. I think I spend too little time thinking and too much time reading, to be quite honest. You know, I live a couple of blocks from the beach um, in San Diego, and every um, and I'd walk my dog to the beach, we sit on the bench, and I look at the ocean, and I think. I mean, because I browse the news stories in the morning. I don't read opinion pieces about the news stories because they bias my view already. So I read, and I go and say, you know, why... Is this happening? What what though that hour I spend thinking about the news is actually the most productive hour I have during the day because that's where my writing comes from, my teaching comes from is by making connections because I let my brain kind of go on its own. You are such a famous brand name though at Stern. People at Stern sort of talk about you. I even know alums who watch your, you know, recordings even if they didn't get to take your class. You have also though been one of the top rated MBA professors in the entire country. What's your secret for keeping people so engaged and excited about a topic like finance? 
if I'm excited about what I do, my belief is other people will be excited as well. I tell people, look, you have two choices. You can watch me have fun up here or you can join in. And uh, it's so much easier to join in. So to me, I love what I talk about and I love teaching. And I think they both come through. And I think that's infectious. I mean, think back to all the great teachers you've had in your lifetime. And the one thing they will all share is that they were absolutely enthusiastic about what they were teaching at the moment they were teaching you, right? It's not that they you were supreme intellects. So that, I think, is not what made you remember a teacher. They were so passionate, enthusiastic, that you said, if they're having that much fun, I want to get a sense of why they're having fun. They, you're just curious about what is it that excites this guy so much about valuing lift? I don't even start off with the class saying, I want to excite people. I just want them to see how excited I am. And along the way, they'll probably feel the need to join in. No. So you mentioned one thing when you approach valuation, you have to have a lot of faith. And that's something that you've brought up a bit. Has there been a time where you've lost faith in your method or struggled with that and had to reevaluate and readjust? Constantly. The essence of faith is you're going to be questioned, right? I mean, I bought GE and I bought NVIDIA on last week in December of 2018. And in a couple of weeks later, NVIDIA came out with an earnings report. China was a problem. The stock dropped $7. That's your faith being tested. You don't need faith to do valuation. You need faith to act on your valuation. Anybody can do valuation. In fact, most people who do valuation have no faith. They do it because they have to do it for somebody else. They do it because they have to write an equity research report. But to act on your valuation, you need faith. You need faith that you actually have a value that you can hang your hat on. And you need faith that the price will adjust to value. And the nature of faith is it's constantly going to be shaken. In fact, when somebody says, I have absolute faith, that's not faith, that's dogma. That's religion. And the truly religious people actually are much more open about the fact that their faith is not absolute. I mean, I tell people the story of Mother Teresa in the 1970s telling an audience that every morning she woke up, she questioned the existence of God. And I tell people if Mother Teresa can question the existence of God, then I can question whether value has a basis. It seems like a much smaller question to ask. But I'm always suspicious of people who talk in absolutes because that to me is incompatible with what a faith is. Absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. So what type of advice would you give incoming MBA students who weren't sure about their career but knew that they had a passion for valuation? I have some bad news. I mean, if your passion is valuation at its core and you take a job in what you think is valuation, you're going to find that 95% of what you do is not valuation, it's pricing. Your job is to put a number on a transaction so it gets done. Think of yourself as a realtor. Your passion is not to put a number on a house, it's to get houses sold. So if you have a passion about putting a number on a house, do it on your own time, which means that if you truly have a passion for valuation, you're going to have a tough time finding a job where that passion unfolds, at least initially. Eventually, you might get there, but I think you've got to pay your dues, right? So I think that the reality is the world has to revolve around transactions getting done, deals getting done, and for transactions and deals to get done, you've got to price things. Let me use the Lyft example as my illustration. If I were a banker on the Lyft deal, I could not have the degrees of freedom that I will when I value Lyft today. Because right. I don't care whether the IPO is successful or not. I don't get paid because I've made an underwriting guarantee price. 
If you're a banker, you have to price lift, which means you got to play the game that the market's playing, which might have nothing to do with valuation. And that frustrates people because they get passionate about valuation. They get a job in what they think is valuation. They notice that everybody around them is using PE ratios and comparables. And they say, well, why aren't we doing an intrinsic valuation? It's very simple. Your job is to get deals done. It's to, your job is pricing, not valuation. And you've got to accept that. Excellent. Awesome. Well, Professor, thank you so much for your time. We value your time, your dedication to your students, and we appreciate your time in the studio here today. You're welcome. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you.